I remember when I first started doing this job. It's about eight years ago now. A little over eight years ago, actually. And I remember that because this film came out in that period of time. And I realized that someday I might be asked to talk about these films. And, you know, that'd be cool. I don't actually remember if we'd started doing the stream stuff when this film came out. I know we eventually started doing that. It's like a regular feature. Our little, you know, spoiler discussions. I bring this all up, though, because when I first looked at this film in the theaters, I thought, well, this is going to be an interesting one to talk about on camera. But no worries, because there'll be a director's cut, and I'll be able to watch that version for when I finally do the rumination on it. <sighs> so, here we are. <laughs> no director's cut. For those of you who aren't aware of what I'm referencing... This film is usually considered to have what we call a troubled production cycle. Now, we need to talk about that. But regardless, this film was supposed to be much larger, much longer, I should say. And it wasn't. And there's reasons for that. We'll talk about that, too. But several times, Whedon was like, yeah, I can't. We're going to make a director's cut. It's, maybe? Okay, no, we're not making a director's cut. Maybe someday we'll make a director's cut. It's never happened. It's been years. <laughs> we barely have leaked copies of things that were cut scenes. That's about all we got at this point in time. Yeah. I mean, there are a few features on the, you know, the Blu-ray, but that's about all we got. The film... <sighs> Let's talk about this, shall we? Because you're pro I just realized you're probably wondering why this is happening before Guardians of Ammon. I realized after finishing the video on Winter Soldier that Winter Soldier led so nicely into this one that I'd go ahead and accept it. Even though this film actually happens after Guardians of the Galaxy. In fact, this film even references Guardians of the Galaxy very, very briefly at the very end. Um, this felt better for narrative flow and an analytical structure. The problem with discussing this film is that there's this is a weird example of misinformation. And I say that very specifically because when we have multiple sources telling us opposing things, we have misinformation. That That's not a matter of interpretation. That's a matter of you're not sure who's telling the truth, if anyone is. The moment that becomes a variable, uh, we have to just kind of make do with what we got. Let me share a factoid with you. How many of you don't like this film? Honest question. I figure I asked this up front because most of you who don't like this film probably aren't going to watch the rest of the video. I have no idea how long this is going to be. It's a long film. But I ask that because in my experience, there are four MCU films that usually come up for people's least favorite MCU film. These include Iron Man 2, which we've already covered, Iron Man 3, which we've already covered. Uh, I still can't think of the other one. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Thor 2. There we go. Thor 2, which we've already covered. And this film. And I understand where people are coming on that, on, on all of those, actually. Uh, I don't personally agree. I'd probably put Thor 2 at the bottom of the list, even after rewatch. But I, looking at all of that list, I wonder why it is you guys don't like this film. And I would like an honest answer, if you don't mind. If you don't mind giving it to me. I, I, I am not calling anyone out. I also consider this to be fairly lackluster compared to most of the rest of the films of the franchise. But I don't think it's bad. Quite the contrary, I actually enjoyed it more this time because I got to spend a lot more time really digging into the character pieces, which there were a decent amount of. Although I noticed on this replay, there are a lot of action set pieces in this film, aren't there? Like, a lot. Like, more than usual. Anyways. So, uh, let's talk about uh, the Marvel Creative Committee.
I've actually mentioned that several times before, except not really. Okay, hang on. Let me rewind here. I'm going to be bringing up the committee in the next two videos we do because their influence is relevant to both Ant-Man and to uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. And in fact, I'll probably be bringing them up one more time when it comes to Civil War because that's the official moment at which the committee kind of stopped being directly involved with the creation of these films. But I bring them up here because they gave some interesting directives from on high. Let me give you one example of this. Joss Whedon wanted to expand on the Thor cave scene to make it make more sense, rather than just Thor goes off to a cave, gets a vision that makes no sense, and then comes back to help make the vision. Like, none of that is really adequately explained in the film. We can infer, excuse me, we can infer based on future stuff, but that's it. It was a very, very truncated scene. You might ask, well, why is that? Well, that's because he was told by the executive committee, or excuse me, the creative committee, you have a choice. We can expand the cave scene, but if we do so, we're going to cut the farm scene. Apparently, several people on both the creative uh, committee and someone else I'll mention in just a moment really did not like the inclusion of the farm scene. I find that very interesting since it was probably my favorite part of the film. Now, granted, I'm, you know, I'm a character person, and I, I love that kind of real personal stuff, and I think that Burton's awesome, and Jeremy Renner actually does an excellent job of the ordinary guy amongst the heroes. But regardless, that was the call, and wisely, Whedon decided to keep the farm scene. I mean, I'm with him on that. I point that out, though, because this also leads to a couple of other similar problems. In addition to this big change, there was the fact that there were originally going to be more characters in this than, than actually were. Abomination was going to be coming back. I'm not sure how they were going to manage that one. Um, they were, which would have actually done a better job of tying in the Incredible Hulk into the MCU, which, as is, it's barely dangling by a thread to the rest of the MCU. A thread named Ross. <clears throat> And then we have the fact that they were going to introduce several other new characters, including Captain Marvel, who had, by the time this video has gone live, has finally gotten out and done her own film. I'm obviously not going to talk about that here. But I'm, I'm, I'm truncating a little bit because there's a lot, and I mean a lot, of executive meddling on this film. Now, Whedon himself has said several things that have been reported, misreported, and overreported as, as a consequence of the creation of this film. The most common story that's being said is, Whedon hated working on this film. It was horrible and darkness. And the truth is a little bit more boring than that, which is, of course, why they don't report on it, because boring doesn't sell. doesn't get clicks, right? It would be more accurate to say that Whedon was burnt out working on this film. He didn't like working with the committee who did, and he didn't like the fact that he had to spend so much time on site. It's worth noting, however, that that was his choice. He specifically stated in multiple interviews that he wanted to give the film a different visual look to basically everything else they'd done, so he actually went on location to several places across the globe in order to film this film, which is why it was so straining to him and why he, you know, was kept away from home for so long and blah, blah, blah. I, Right? I mean, that's logical, right? It was a train on him. He also mentions that he really hated the executive meddling. Who doesn't dislike executive meddling? The very definition of executive meddling doesn't mean an executive who meddles. It means the corporation fat cats looking down on high. Imagine I have a tie for a moment. And they're like, yes! Wait, hang on. I'll, I'll complete the image here really quick. Give me a second. Thou must changeth this thing becauseeth I am stupideth. That's what executive meddling means. So... In relation to this film, of course Whedon had issues with it. But we do need to talk about one other person, and that person is Perlmutter. 
Most of you who have, who have successfully watched this film this far, excuse me, by this film I mean my video this far, probably are someone who is aware of Pearl, who Perlmutter is. But on the off chance you don't, all I'm going to say is that he's basically in charge of Marvel and leave it at that. He is a money-grubbing, scum-sucking bastard who is not exactly a good person. Um, he is among... If you were to look up some of the the typical, like, you know what I mean, like, the typical corporate executive who is corrupt and evil, yeah, that's Perlmutter, except he is that in real life. He's not the only one like that. In fact, he's actually probably one of the least bad of that type, and I mean that sincerely. But he's still an unpleasant person. As a consequence of this, he tends to be, and the specific thing that he tends to be most known for is penny-pinching. He's really big on squeezing the budgets. Now... Forgive me for flaunting basic economic knowledge, but spending less money is not automatically a good thing. And that's what I mean when I say penny-pinching. Obviously, managing a budget properly is a good thing and should be done, and you shouldn't try to trim fat and excess when it comes to a budget. However, he tries to trim everywhere all the time constantly. In fact, that was his favorite method of making a buck before he ended up you know, taking over in charge of Marvel. There's a whole story behind that I'm not going to bore you guys with. I'm sure you either know it or don't care, but the point is... Perlmutter was really squeezing the budget on this one. Now, that's important to remember, and I want you to remember that, because if we ever cover Phase 3, that's going to come up again. All of these facts meant that this film was kind of having a uh, just a strained production cycle. Then we have to get to the other fact. First of all, how many of you guys, if I was to say, you know, this film was a failure, how many of you would just kind of slowly nod your head? No judgment, again. Because usually when that statement is said, it's, it's, it's from a creative perspective. But the funny thing is lots, and I mean lots, of sites reported on the financial failure of Age of Ultron. If you actually go Google Age of Ultron failure right now, you'll probably see plenty of articles from, you know, four years ago now, all saying that, oh, it's a huge financial flop and blah, blah, blah. This film made $1.4 billion. Not in the home market, just in, just in the theaters. It, uh, in fact, I wrote a few down. It's the, it was, at the time, the fourth highest grossing film of all time. It also made $84.46 million on its opening day, which not only is the best superhero opening film day ever, but also the second best opening day ever, ever, only trailing behind Death, uh, Deathly Hallows for Harry Potter. So where's this financial failure thing coming from? Now, the, my, my point I'm trying to make here is one of two, and I don't actually know which it is. Because either this is just rumor mill mongering, which is reporting inaccuracies, or we're seeing some office politics at play here. Because see, and I hate to skip ahead a bit, but in the future, uh, from, from after the creation of this film, Kevin Feige will, God, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, will go t on to basically managle his way through the office politics to detach himself from both the committee and from Perlmutter, to the point where he is effectively the actual head and president of Marvel Studios, specifically the film division, and doesn't have to answer to them in anything more than an advisory function, rather than the way it has been up till this point where he has been fully under heel. Now... Based on the quality of the Phase 3 films, I think I could say very definitively that that was a good move, because we can see the evidence of the consequences of that move. However, the, if, in case you haven't picked up on it, what I'm trying to say is I have a sneaking suspicion that at least someone within Marvel was upset about how this movie didn't make 
all the money. Oh, it certainly made money. It more than made its budget back, uh, like two and a half times over, something like that. And it made, you know, it was a huge seller and huge domestic. Uh, it also helped really push the China, uh, not the Chinese, excuse me, the Korean market, which was, you know, kind of expanding at this point in time, uh, as far as the MCU films in general. And so, and it, in general, this whole thing went pretty darn well, financially speaking. But someone either said or was misreported as saying, oh, this film just was a financial failure, which then would give uh, Figgy the, fi the, the political affluence to say, I need to be off this leash to make these things successes. I don't know how much of that's true or not, because funny fact, when I tried to actually do my due diligence and look up the source article for the financial failure thing, I didn't find one. Oh, I found plenty of sites reporting on it, and I found plenty of articles reporting on it, but none of them could really cite anything as a source other than another article, or nothing in some cases. So I'm going to firmly tack the rumor label onto that one. Now, I do want to mention a couple other things here. Uh, first of all, Andy Serkis is in this film, briefly. He's actually kind of awesome. It, really, he's actually one of my favorite characters. In fact, I really like him in Black Panther as well. And I point this out because he wasn't supposed to be. Circus was there helping with motion capture stuff for the other actors, because of course he was. And he it, it, it just clicked in a way that everyone was like, you know what, fine. By report, this is also something I'm also going to label rumor, but by report, someone had actually shown fan art of Andy Circus playing Claw, and they were like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and so he's in as basically a cameo. He does a good job of it. Uh, they also deliberately wanted to reference Wakanda. Now, Wakanda actually had been referenced once before. Uh, I don't remember which one, but it was in an Iron Man, I want to say. So they, they, Wakanda had come up before, but Whedon wanted to bring Wakanda more to the forefront. This is probably also partially because of the fact that Black Panther was already being in the works at this point in history, so obviously they need to start establishing this because Wakanda also comes up in Civil War, so you can kind of see how the relevance of this thing. I suppose that's a good time as any to bring up something interesting. Now, I've said this before. In fact, I, I just discussed Serenity uh, a month or two ago. I've said this before, and I'll say this again. I, I don't think Joss Whedon is the best thing ever. He's a geek, and I respect that. He's got real passion for the work, and I respect that. He's actually a pretty darn good director and writer, and I will respect that. But I know a lot of people who seem to think that he is the bestest thing ever, which I'm just not on board with. And I want to mention that... Because this is probably one of the first times I've ever had an egregious disagreement with him and his approach. See, he has said on multiple interviews that he wanted to basically push away from continuity in this film. Now, I could read into that and say that maybe the fact that he wanted to go away from continuity and the fact that he was being forced to be con continuity might have been part of the whole not enjoying the process of making the film thing I mentioned earlier. But that's reading into it and just conjecture. What we do know is he wanted to make this film such that Someone who had never seen the rest of the films could just drop right in and enjoy it. The, uh, what's that called? There's actually a term for it. The episodic thing, right? You know, Star Trek. You don't need to watch the previous episode to get most episodes of Star Trek, right? And there is a valid statement to be said for that, and there's valid arguments to be said for that. Thing is, if I could just be completely blunt, A, I really don't agree. Not, not in general, but in this specific case. Because the very nature of the way these films work is... You've got like a branch of films which lead into a singular point, which usually terminates the phase, Avengers. Then we've got branches, and then we go into a terminating point, which was actually Ant-Man technically in this case. But this, this film is effectively the terminating point of phase two. And then Infinity War is the terminating point of phase three, right? Well, actually, Endgame was, but you get my point. Each of these is a, by its very nature and design, 
a conclusion of the arcs leading up to it. Or at least that's how it's supposed to work. But as I think I've been pointing out throughout these Phase 2 discussions, none of these films really have anything to do with each other, with the sole exception of Winter Soldier leading more or less directly into this one. I mean, I could mention, uh, what is it, Episode 19, Season 2 of S.H.I.E.L.D.? Uh, I don't remember the name of the episode. It's, it's on the tip of my tongue. And that how that literally leads immediately into uh, this. But for the most part, the continuity just isn't there. So maybe that's what he was thinking. Then again, maybe there was just some pushes against continuity in general. But the other reason I wanted to bring this up is because one of the things they did in more recent stuff is they specifically started to make films for the fans. In other words, rather than trying to cater to people, to, to every person, they specifically catered people who are already invested. Now, that is a limited strategy. It's something you can only do every now and again, and it's something you can only do in a specific circumstance. You have to have the investment. You have to have the built-up franchise to do that. But it is my opinion that that will always succeed better, assuming you have done your proper prep work, which arguably they have with Phase 3 and with the MCU in general. The idea that Infinity War, for example, nobody was trying to... One of the biggest complaints several critics had was, who the hell are all these characters in Infinity War? I'm so confused. And yet, those critics were stupid, because the entire point of Infinity War was, was specifically designed and engineered for people who had been following the MCU. Probably from the beginning, but at the very least, you know, at some point along the line. Now, whether you think that's a success or a failure is up to you, of course, because everyone has their own opinions on the matter. But for me, I think that made Infinity War better than it otherwise would have been. Because it was part three, basically, you know? Part three doesn't mean anything if it's totally detached from part one and two. Now, again, that doesn't mean that applies universally. If you're just going to make a film to be a film, that's fine. If you're going to make an episode to be an episode, that's fine. But if you do an arc leading up to something, you probably want to have some kind of conclusion. I suppose you could argue that that's phase two in a nutshell. Episodic. You know, the, the opposite of the continuity thing. You know, just each thing kind of doing its own thing with very, very, very vague connecting points. Maybe that's part of why I don't care for phase two as much. Although it does have actually quite a few films I like, so I, I suppose I can't even say that. Hmm. So, the Avengers assemble to finish off Hydra, like I said, right after, you know, Season 2, Episode 19 of S.H.I.E.L.D. I'm pretty sure it's 19. I could be wrong about that. Please feel free to correct me. Uh, and, of course, language! <laughs> I, I found that especially amusing because I'm, in real life, I don't cuss, or at the very least, I don't like to cuss. If it does, it slips out, and it's very, very rare. I could probably name how many times I've cussed in the last year, and it's not a large number. And I point that out because when, when I was watching this in the theater, my sister was like, it's just, <laughs> and she just looked at me and I'm like, what is it? It's you. Yeah, I know, I know, shut up. Because <laughs> all of my friends cuss all over the place. Um, <clears throat> so they, they go through, blah, big action sequence. We've got to start with a big action set piece. And they go and they get the, the scepter. Uh, yeah, okay. And Strucker is there. Strucker is there. He has a, he has a basically non-role in the film. What I like is there's this bit where he's like, oh, God, what do we do? What do we do? Um, and he goes to the troop, and the troops are seeing. There was a, he just started attacking. He was spooked. Well, can we hold them? The guy just says in this almost exasperated tone, it's the Avengers. <laughs> we can't hold these guys. It's like, okay, you're right, you're right. We will show them who we are. We will show them their strength. A rousing speech. No surrender. Yeah. I'm going to surrender. I'm going to turn myself in. <laughs> um, I don't have much to say about this action sequence as I usually don't we've got uh, 
the magnetic shield, the recall thing on the that that's actually really cool. I find myself wondering how magnetic vibranium is, but whatever. As we find out in Black Panther, vibranium can do anything, so I'm just willing to to bypass that one. It is literally magic metal. <laughs> well, we've got uh, a lot of combo attacks. There's actually a great bit. My personal favorite is when they all line up and Cap just puts up his shield and Thor, and that's the end of them. Uh, let's see. We've got the Hulk. Weaponizing the Hulk is interesting. They see, even in this film, that him going green is something that they only do occasionally. Which makes sense, because they don't really have control over the Hulk, because, well, you can't really have control over the Hulk, right? That's that's not how that works. And I do enjoy the way they deal with this, with Natasha being the one to to, to basically have already worked out, probably with Banner, the way to calm him down and bring him back to Banner. I also especially find that interesting because you get the impression that Romanoff is still scared of him, as she should be. <laughs> I just want to point that out, given where this film goes in the future, but I'll talk about that in a minute. Let's go ahead and mention the part where uh, Wanda goes around and starts giving people visions. Now, that there's a bit where she reaches into Stark's head and he sees, you know, the Chitari coming back and, and everyone's dead and they're all invading Earth. It's a very powerful scene, which was, of course, basically all of the trailer. <clears throat> Yay, trailer magic. But I bring this scene up because of two things. First of all, this is a film predominantly about Tony Stark, more than any other character. While there are certainly other characters who get a lot of um, character development, uh, Romanoff being a good one, Banner being a good one, and, of course, uh, you know, everything going on... <laughs> Point being, Stark is the one who, this is really his arc. It probably helps that he's effectively the villain, too. But I point this out. This, the thing I like about this is this helps to follow through on the arc that really started in Iron Man 1. I mentioned this back in Iron Man 3. He is at the point where he is still wigged out about the whole situation with the Chitauri invasion back in New York. Yeah, I'm with that. And he's obviously still bothered about that here in this film. And he's obviously still working on trying to figure out a way to deal with that long term. He doesn't really bring this up early on, but this this, this forms the core backbone of everything about his character with the entirety of this film. Um, I'll just go into it right now, because why not? My favorite parts about this are, A, when he he's so on edge. Robert Downey Jr. does an excellent job. He portrays him, he, he's, he's taut. You can just see him straining as he's almost shaking. He's not quite shaking, but he's almost shaking from how taut he is pulled. And he's just, yeah, let's, let's look at the scepter. Let's see if we can figure this out. And maybe this could be the way to, to make this work. I don't know. We, we can do something. Sure, we, we can do that. I don't know. Why not? Uh, yeah. And he doesn't tell his teammates stuff. Now, that's actually important because he does that uh, three times throughout the course of the film. That's something that I feel could have been an actual plot thread, or I guess I should say a thematic thread, throughout the film, but it doesn't really come through, the idea of them not actually being a team. Because we saw them unite, more or less by circumstance, back in the Avengers, and they were a great team together. But other than that, this is effectively the second time they've banded together, and this is kind of it. And you'll notice that they were a team when they were fighting... Well, okay, let me put it to you this way. Any of you guys have friends? I know that sounds like a weird, maybe even mean question, but let me clarify that a little bit. Let's say you have a friend. You get along, and everything's great, and everything's cool. Cool! Is that a friend? I would say no. Because friendships, real friendships, 
are only, for me, this is just my own terminology, only clarify or classify, I'm sorry, as a friendship if it gets to the point where something bad happens, disagreements, something horrible, they, 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 they go through this crap or they hurt you or whatever, and now it's not just us unified against a, a universal threat. It's us getting along with each other and still being friends despite the fact that we disagree with each other, despite the fact that we don't think the same, despite the fact that we're angry at each other. That's a real friend. I bring that up because the Avengers have never had to deal with that until this film. Back in the first film, yeah, they had some bickering pettiness, but a lot of that was because of the Scepter's influence. In this film, they are united against a common foe and do so instantly and without question. Yay! And then there's revelry. But when they have to deal with their own differing ideologies, when they have to disagree with each other, that friendship, that teamwork, is far more tested. You could argue that they don't even really unify by the end of the film. Because the final argument never actually happens. Instead, Vision basically interrupts the final argument, and then they decide to go and fight against a universal enemy. <laughs> right? So, it's a, it, now that, that makes sense. Remember, Civil War is still coming. But I just wanted to point that out because I feel like that could have been a stronger theme in the film, and as is, it's something you have to kind of pluck out of certain scenes because it doesn't really have the time and attention devoted to it. Maybe a full version would have been working for that? I don't know. It's worth noting, though, and I just want to mention this really quick. Whedon was originally supposed to come back and do Infinity War and Endgame. He didn't as a result of how much this film burned him out. Okay, understandable. I wonder what kind of films we would have gotten if Whedon had been in charge. I really do. It's not like they wouldn't have been dark. Whedon knows how to do dark. Oh my god, he knows how to do dark. So I'm just, I'm honestly curious where the, where that would have gone. Just kind of a what-if scenario. Stark makes a comment. I'm going to keep on Stark for a second here. Stark makes a comment about how he doesn't want to hear the you shouldn't do this or this is beyond your can or whatever speech again. I point that out because that shows something. This film kind of makes it look like Stark is the villain, and, I mean, Ultron, right? But I don't agree. There's an interesting... That bit and a couple other bits make it clear that no one else, with the exception of Banner, is actually listening to him, really listening to him. Bringing back my friend parallel, how many of you and your friends, whether acquaintances or real friends, have gotten to the point where one of you is just not listening to the other? I don't know about you guys, but that drives me insane. There's very little that will piss me off quicker than trying to have a discussion with someone, or even an argument with someone, who is adamantly just not listening to what I'm saying. They just insist that they are right, or that I am wrong, or both. And I'm just, well, are you going to listen to this? No, of course they're not going to listen. Because that's the position Stark is in. I have a very strong feeling that if they hadn't been pushing him on this, there's a chance he could have just walked up and said, listen. Here's what I'm doing, and here's why I'm doing it. And you'll notice that Stark tries to defend himself and explain himself twice to the group. Now, granted, both times it is a form of see uh, apologizing rather than seeking... Uh, er, hang on. See seeking forgiveness rather than seeking permission. Sorry, I was saying that wrong. In both cases, he's already done it, or is already in the process of doing it. But both times he's just like, this is... There's a point behind this. You know, there is bigger coming. That up there, that's the end game. Deliberate name name drop there. That's the end game. 
We could go around, we could bust over uh, you know, bunkers and, and weapons depots and all that stuff all day long. But when that comes, that's when the real problems hit. Stark is uniquely positioned to be someone who actually sees the grander scope of threat. Can I share a quote with you guys for a second? The quote is something along the lines of this, so this is paraphrased. I pity the people who are truly smart because they see how bad things really are. And I'm not going to say who that quote's from. And that, I feel, is Stark in, in pretty much all the films. He is sufficiently intelligent and sufficiently capable of zooming out the camera far enough to see just how dangerous of a situation they're in. He knows about the Nine Realms. He knows that there is an out there. He knows that there's ships. He knows that there's weapons. He knows that there's armies. And Earth, what has Earth got? Imagine for a moment if real-life Earth was just into, say, Star Trek or Star Wars or Farscape or whatever. A, a, a typical science fi fiction setting, right? We would be so laughably, hilariously behind everyone that all it would take would be the first random group of marauder thugs with a fleet to come and cause us the kind of issues that we probably couldn't deal with. And that's the, what that's what Stark's seeing. He doesn't even know about Thanos, or if he does, he, he's it's not really in the forefront of his mind. He just knows that there is a greater world out there that's already way ahead of us. We've got nothing. So I, I, you can see why I kind of sympathize with Stark in this one. Um, there's another bit. <laughs> there's another bit here. Skipping ahead of my thoughts here. Um, he insists, you know, we're in a loop. We're in a feedback loop. We're just trying the same stuff again. You know, passive reference to the concept of insanity. I don't agree with that either. Like, like Rogers comes in and he just lays down the law. Nope, you're not doing this. There's no discussion. You can see the problem with that approach. And Stark's like, okay, look, listen, this is... We're doing this differently and we're doing this better. And I'm actually with Stark on this one. Let me put it to you this way. If you sit down and you try to build something and it falls apart because you made a mistake, do you never try to build that thing again? Now, you could argue that that logic doesn't apply here. Because obviously what they're doing is far higher scale than making a model or something. But it is the same logic that applies. It's just, this is why this needed to be a discussion. This is why Stark needed to sit down and be like, guys, listen. We screwed it up last time. Here's why. You know, it's because of the mind orb. It's because of the mind stone that was in the scepter and it causes this and blah, blah, blah. And now we think we can try something different. It's the same approach, but we're going to try a different, you know, we're going to go at a different angle and try to make this actually work this time in order to be able to go up against Ultron or whatever he's got going on. Instead, it's more, well, they're not going to listen and they're not going to do anything, so I need to try this basically right now, Banner. Are you with me or not? And Banner's just like, okay. <laughs> right? It's... I'd say it's actually one of the weaker points of the film, if I'm honest, because the film feels like it's trying to have it, have it both ways, portray Stark as both the villain and the victim. And I don't think it succeeds in the way that that kind of nuance is really necessary. Getting back to the earlier part of the film, though, Stark has a vision <laughs> right at the beginning. What I like about that is Wanda sees it too, or at least it's implied she does, because she is just shook by that. I like that. Because, remember, Wanda's just a kid. I mean, Wanda and Pietro, I hope I'm saying that right, are both basically just kids. They're just, you know, they're punks, to quote uh, Hawkeye on this one. 
And I like the idea that being forced to see some of the reality of what he sees would kind of just shake her a little bit. Obviously it doesn't shake her enough, since she still goes on to be a villain for most of the film, but regardless. I'm looking at my notes here. There's a... <laughs> I forgot a line. One of the things that what, that Stark says when he's trying to convince Banner to work on the Ultron program is, they will be back. They came back. They will be back. As has been pointed out earlier, not only because of the Tesseract, but also because of the fact that Earth has already been invaded. Earth's already on the radar. That's the other aspect of this. It's not like Earth is just some random un, unexplored planet that's not really worth anyone's attention. There's been a beacon there, and now people are paying attention to it, and uh, the end, really. Uh, so they brought in Claudia Kim to play Helen Cho. Now, I think she does a good job. She actually has a pretty decent role in the film, and she's a decent actress, too. Is Thor going to be there? <laughs> but I also like uh, the sort of almost casual smug superiority of her approach, which doesn't go over to the point of actually being you know, aggressive or obnoxious. So she does a good balance with that role. Um, she was, of course, brought in to help make this film sell better in Korea, but if I'm being honest, I'm okay with that as long as you do something good with it. Like, I, I, Lord knows I have talked extensively about the unfortunate pairing of the financial and the creative side of fiction and how you kind of have to keep both in mind when it comes to creating whatever it is you're going to make. But I bring this up because it's something that has become more and more common with a lot of recent films where they will uh, either film stuff in or star... Uh, you know, actors or actresses or whatever from a specific space in order to try and get that place to help fund it in order to try and make the film sell better and make more money, blah, blah, blah. And again, I'm with that as long as you do something good with it. As long as it's not something that's like, and hey, I'm here as the token such-and-such person. Look how important I am. You know, as long as they don't go into Mary Sue territory, by my definitions, as long as they don't go into, you know, the, the case of the token person, I'm okay with that. And I think Helen Cho was a good inclusion in the film. So, poor Rhodey. <laughs> I feel so bad for Rhodey. Then I dropped a tank on him, and I was like, boom, you're looking for this? But I, that's... Oh God, this is why I don't like hanging out with you guys. I feel so bad, because War Machine is, is, is always listed as basically less tier than the rest of the main Avengers. I'm not sure if that's even earned. I'll talk more about War Machine later, but in my opinion, he's always been more of a destroyer than a warrior, using my own classifications. I need to add that to the website at some point. Because, in, in brief, because I don't talk about this all the time, a warrior is someone who's really good at you know single target, and a destroyer is, is good at someone who goes... And that's definitely War Machine. He's just got the hardware. And he's really good at taking on groups, or, or terrain, or locations, or giant bosses, or whatever. That's War Machine. He actually does that to good effect later on in the film. But uh, apparently he doesn't do that many large-scale missions. I mean, he is working on the literal behalf of the United States government, so maybe that's why? I don't know. So, Pepper is apparently missing. This is an interesting thing, because this will also come up in Civil War, and then just suddenly go away in Spider-Man. I'm not 100% sure why that is. I'll be looking into that if we ever cover those future films in the Phase 3. But it's, they just kind of decided to write her out. And, of course, Miss Jane Foster, well, we know her problems, as I mentioned back in Thor 2, and how she didn't want to have anything to do with the MCU until she changed her mind on the matter. So she was kind of written out. I do like the idea that Potts is running Stark, and I like the idea that Jane is one of the best astrophysicists in the world, who is, who is basically running around the entire world trying to figure out what she can about the convergence and the dimensions and whatever. I'm with that. I uh, hope we see her again at some point, but whatever. We have, uh, I mean, the party's nice and all. 
there's also a lot of war veterans there. I found that interesting. But during the party, there's, you know, the, the whole party is good, but then there's a bit where it's just the close friends. And I just want to say that that's a good scene. For all the things that I both agree and disagree with Whedon about, one of the things he's really good about is the sort of tight-knit camaraderie. He's really good at just having buds who are just, you know, talking and chatting with each other. He's good at that. I like that. And this scene shows it great. It's also probably, honestly, my fa- my second favorite, I would say, Hawkeye scene. And I say that, you know, probably like, well, who cares about Hawkeye? I do. He's actually probably my favorite Avenger in this film. No joke. He does a lot of really good stuff. But he's just, yeah, sure, whatever. I also love the, the idea Cap actually budges the hammer. Just just a little bit. <laughs> and Thor's face. Oh, oh God. <laughs> so, um, of course, that was in the trailer, too. So, you know, Ultron makes his appearance. And I'm going to talk about Ultron uh, now. I actually have all my notes about Ultron in a separate section because I really wanted to just talk about Ultron in his own group, which is right here. Let me just say that James Spader sells Ultron. Several people have cited the fact that James Spader was the one and only casting choice for Ultron, and he, he really is perfect for it. The man just has a way of talking where there's a natural smoothness and a simultaneous humanity and inhumanity to his tone. I can't even begin to emulate it. It's just wonderful. And he, funnily enough, he decided, they decided not to do any voice modulation. I mean, yeah, he's got the little bit of the robotic tint going to his voice, but otherwise that's just him talking with his normal voice. And I think that's a good idea. Now, to explain that a little bit, obviously a really good voice actor can continue to be a voice actor even if they're doing something like this. But that's pretty difficult to do and takes significant training, and some of the best voice actors still can't do that. By contrast, James Spader is not a voice actor at all. He is an actor, and there is a big difference between those two, as I've talked about many times before. So the fact that they allowed him to use his regular voice means he can do all of his acting because he's just trying to act and focus on his acting rather than focusing on voice modulation and acting at the same time. And, of course, not doing any external modulation means we can hear everything that he is doing very smoothly and and conclusively. So... First of all, obviously, you know, they make a lot of com- comparisons to Ultron being Tony. And in fact, there's a lot of obvious comparisons between both Ultron and Tony. Having rewatched the film, I know this is going to sound weird, but I don't think I agree. Not really. Like, obviously, the, the direct parallel is obvious. Ultron is trying to, you know, ah, I must do whatever is necessary to make the mission happen. The only thing that matters is the next mission. But... And, and obviously they both have the tendency to snark. <laughs> but that really is as far as that goes. If anything, Ultron feels like someone who has been gifted tremendous power and knowledge with nothing in order to balance that out. Usually we in real life tend, tend to refer to that something that helps balance, us, not, helps balance knowledge out as wisdom. In other words, intellect is knowledge, wisdom is knowledge applied, Right? But he's like a couple days old throughout the course of this film, or however long the film takes place over. So you can kind of get the impression that he just is just, um, okay. And Spader himself has commented on the fact that he portrays him as someone who has an extremely warped and twisted worldview because he has nothing to help him understand or comprehend that. The visual scene towards the beginning where he's talking with Jarvis, and he's like, oh, who's this? Okay, these are the Avengers, I'm with that. 
What's this? Oh, okay, war, uh-huh, peace, uh, peace in our time. And he's just absorbing ludicrous amounts of information with nothing to help him with that. And so instead he gets the idea that, all right, well, I have to make peace, real peace. It's the only way to do that. I'm going to go ahead and wipe the floor. What's funny, though, is he makes several references which are very casual lines of dialogue, but each one of them seems to indicate the same thing, that they're coming. Uh, and that, in his opinion, the way humanity is right now, the way Earth is right now, is just not ready for it. They're not ready for whatever is coming, whatever is happening, you know, the, the stone that God's winding up, as he himself puts it. And so we see, I suppose that's another thing he has in, in, in similarity with Stark. He likes to grandstand. <laughs> so we see that he's like, okay, well, I have to force this now. I have to force this new evolution. I have to force people to change and live, and whatever survives will be better suited to dealing with whatever comes. Right? I mean, that's just logical, right? Yeah. <laughs> He also, do you guys think he cares about the twins? Honest question. I think he does. The bit where he's like, no, I, I want to hear this personal story of yours. Um, there's a bit where, you know, they effectively turn on him. And he's like, no, no. And of course he has this line, and I feel like I wrote it down. Yep, I wrote it down right here. When they see, they'll understand. They'll, they'll see and they'll understand. You know, just, they have to understand. I'm doing this, I'm doing the right thing, damn it. I have to show them. You know, there's that kind of thing there. Uh, just kind of motivating him. And of course, right towards the end, as he's falling apart, his, his core body is falling apart. You know, Wanda, you have to get out of here. You'll die. She says, oh, I, I died a few minutes ago, thanks. <laughs> now... There's also a bit where he is enraged at being compared to Stark. He is so enraged that not only does he chop Klaus' arm off, didn't really even mean to. He was just a... And then he's, oh, God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Just, why would you say that? And then he shoves him down the stairs because he's still pissed. <laughs> I do love how he's like, oh, yeah, here, have billions of dollars. I wonder how much of Black Panther and the events surrounding that are affected by the billions of dollars that Claw got as a result of this film. Anyways, <clears throat> I'm looking forward to seeing that film again. I hope you guys voted in Phase 3, if for nothing else, so I can see Black Panther again, so I have the excuse. Because I don't have time to just watch a film right now. But he is so enraged at that, and that makes perfect sense, because after all, I am nothing like Stark. Stark's an idiot, a moron who runs around constantly trying to fix things and just making things worse. All he does is, I am nothing like him! You know, you get that across. It's very, it's very wonderful, it's kind of understated, too. He has a line which also kind of made me think. Who decides who survives, who lives through this apocalyptic explosion you're going to cause? And his response is, well, life chooses. Right? Life chooses who survives. Now, if you wonder why I'm bringing that up, let's just say it sounds a whole lot to me like... So, there's also a bit, he's, his whole shtick is, of course, evolution, and he even shows this in a wonderfully, if incredibly overt, visual parallel. He's there, and his new body reaches a hand through the old body, melts it and crushes it, so that the new body can stand in its place. That he himself is also destroying the old in order to make ray for the new. Sadly, I don't have much else to say about Ultron. He's... What I think I like most about him, and I know this is going to sound weird, is that he's a person, not a robot. He is obviously a you know, deranged robot. You could definitely say that. 
but the fact that he is still a person with flaws and difficulties and emotional instabilities helps add to the character in my opinion rather than him just being you know a, a AI or a robot both of which can be done and have been done in many different ways over the years and of course James Spader so he has his big entrance and they're like oh crap what do we do there's a nice bit where where Stark flat out says, you know, that's the end game up there. As I, as I mentioned, he's giving a speech to them and trying to explain what the hell's going on. And I mention that because not only the end game reference, but he says, "What do we do when that comes? How do we deal with that?" And Rogers' answer is, "We'll do it together." And he says, "Well, what if we fail? Then we'll do that together too." That is a very appropriate line, in hindsight, isn't it? But I bring it up. Because that's the philosophical, that's the ideological difference that I mentioned earlier. Rogers obviously has a bit of a simplistic worldview, but ultimately he looks at this situation and says, we will deal with this as a team, as a unit, you know, thinking like an army, a soldier. Stark is trying to invent his way around the problem, to design something that can have a preventative nature, an, an, a shield around the world, as he himself puts it. And we see this ideological difference just puts them on different sides of the board. And this is something that, again, I feel like pointing out, is never actually answered or, or resolved throughout the course of the film. I'll talk more about that when we get to the end, but I just wanted to bring it up because, again, the whole friendship thing I mentioned earlier. Now, I'm looking here. We've got Wakanda, you know, the vibranium, woo, claw. Circus is just great. I'm sorry, he absolutely nails the role. He, he does it in Black Panther as well, because he just comes across as someone who just does not give a crap. The way he's, they, they approach him and like, yeah, and he's just like, okay, yeah. So you're going to try to put visions in my head, a cuttlefish, which uh, that means that you're not the one I have to be worried about. I only deal with the one in charge, so that's who I'm going to deal with. And Ultron's like, yeah, okay, that's me. Hi. <laughs> I just point it out because he is great. It's, a, it's a, a combination of competency and, yeah, I've been here, kind of an attitude. You get the impression that this is someone who has looked at the changing world of gods and aliens and superpowers, and his response was, yeah, okay. <laughs> what? New stuff, different day. I'm with it. So, Wanda, there's another action set piece. There's a lot of these in this film. This is the third one so far. Wanda gets in all of their heads. Now, I feel like I spent some time talking about this on stream, but I don't have much else to add to this overall discussion. See, we see Thor, uh, Romanoff, and Cap's visions. Now, we've already kind of seen Stark's. We'll talk about that a little bit later, too. But those are the three visions we see. We actually see a fourth, but I'll get to that in a moment. So, first, with Romanoff, she sees the past that she has been trying to escape her entire life. This has basically been her character arc since the beginning, uh, arguably since Avengers, which was continued in Iron Man 3, and is effectively pushed forward here. The idea that she's not a monster, damn it, she's not a horrible, evil assassin person, that she actually cares and wants to do good and right. And we see how her nightmare is all about how much that past is still clinging to her, that she still feels the weight of that ash on her shoulders. Now... Caps is most interesting to me because his is the most direct. His vision is of a world where everyone's happy and the war's over. Well, how is that a nightmare? Unless you realize where Cap has caught, come in, at this point in his life, where he has reached, I guess is a better way to put that. 
Because Cap is the person who, well, it's said flat out on the film that he kind of needs the war. Stark wants to end the fighting and go home and have kids. And Cap doesn't. As he says in the end of the film, you know, that person died when he went to the ice. Someone else came out. Me? I'm home. I got a job to do. And that's just sort of chilling in its own right, that Rogers is at a point where he can't even perceive the idea of a normal life or, you know, a, a retirement. That's the real word I want to use. That's the word I like to use. Some people think I use that word derogatorily, but that's absolutely the opposite of the case, because retirement is like the end goal. You've successfully done it. You won. And now you can relax and enjoy the fruits of your labors. That's retirement right there. Rogers isn't looking at retirement. He's not even thinking about it. The very idea of it terrifies him. That's interesting, isn't it? But then, of course, we see Thor's. Now, Thor's is the weird one. And this, I feel like some of the chopping of the nature of this leads to this. But Thor's is really about the simple idea that Thor himself is so destructive and damaging that he is going to ruin his own people and that he will not have the ability to save them. You know, the fall of Asgard, that kind of a thing. Which eventually leads to the... Thor Ragnarok cave vision thing. It's kind of vague. It's it's the one I have the least to say about, but I wanted to say it last because it needs leads nicely into the last one. Banner. See, I've heard several people say this in different ways, and that's cool, and I'm with that. But what we do see Banner's nightmare, or the Hulk's nightmare, and I'm not sure which it is, and that's up to you to decide that. Uh, especially if the, you actually even consider them to be separate people, although Thor 3 will very clearly make Banner and Hulk separate people. But at this point in time, it was still debatable. But Banner or the Hulk are both kind of probably share the same nightmare, I would say, and that nightmare is the one that they get to see firsthand. It's not a vision. They get to do it. Nowhere is that... I mean, there's this great scene. This is our fourth set piece now. This is, there's this great scene where they're just going through Johannesburg. And Hulk is just destroying everything in a blind rage. We never see the vision he's given. We don't need to. The Hulkbuster is brought in. That's awesome. I just want to say really quick, the Hulkbuster versus the Hulk was was cool. And I don't want to try and sound like there, there's anything else to be said about that. You notice the Hulkbuster needed nine arc reactors to run, right? Holy crap, how much power is being pushed into that thing? Well, I mean, I just told you, nine reactors worth. You'll also notice that the Stark Relief Foundation is mentioned at this point, which I applaud. It's just one line, but I applaud it for making tons of sense. Of course Stark is going to use sons of his tons and tons of money and infrastructure and resources to try and help, you know, take care of areas that are damaged by collateral. Why wouldn't he? It's actually something that bothered me about the Spider-Man film. But So, I wonder how much assistance Banner himself was on designing the Hulkbuster. What do you guys think? I mean, I know they don't call it the Hulkbuster. They call it Veronica in the film. But how, what do you guys think? Honest question. Because I like to think that Banner and him sat down and talked it out and actually came up with specs and designs specifically to counteract the Hulk. But the Hulk sees his nightmare. He's in the ruins there and he sees the people screaming, terrified, running away from him, scared. Then they have a quiet scene. Planes and now, you know. They go to the safe house. As I said before, I really like this, the farm scene. First of all, you know, I mentioned the concept of retirement. Well, he's still fighting, obviously, but that's his retirement right there. His wife and his soon-to-be three kids. I'm not going to say anything. Um, I like how Nat uh, Natasha knew. I like how Romanoff knew. 
that she wasn't a stranger there. Of course she would. Like, I imagine there would only be two people in the whole world who knew about this place. Fury, who helped set it up, and her, because the two of them are tight, yo. And so I really like the idea that she would be aware of this whole thing. Hawkeye Burton, or, or Barton, excuse me, is, uh, well, he's the new Coulson, isn't he? Agent Coulson was the heart of the team in many ways. There's a reason why the team unified upon his death back in Avengers 1. Point in fact, Whedon actually wanted Coulson to make an appearance in the film and just couldn't slide it in somewhere. Anyways, but it's clear that at this point in time, Hawkeye has basically moved in to take that slot. And i got to admit that I kind of agree with that shift. Hawkeye is effectively superhuman. His, his aiming ability and his perception. Those are his two abilities right there. His perception and his aiming. And in fact, you'll notice earlier, he was the one who didn't get mind infected because he noticed it was coming, whereas nobody else did. In the midst of a heated battle, he heard someone sneaking up to him. Perception, that's his shtick. So, um... <clears throat> but, you know, they, uh... <laughs> I like the fact that this simple, normal human is the one who helps kind of keep them together as a team by virtue of being the weak one, by being the heart, for lack of a better way to put it. You know, what kind of heart is a stupid power? Captain Planet's dumb. Except a good writer knows that heart is essential to any real good team. If you don't have some kind of core keeping that team together, what the hell do you have? Now, the heart doesn't always have to be the weak part. Uh, Many would argue that the Justice League's heart is Superman, for example, arguably the strongest part of it. Other people would argue it's Bats, who is also not the weakest member, but you get my point. But his caring about these people and his presence within them, I think it helps to ground them. And I think it helps to inspire him. And I think that that symbiosis, that nature between them, is part of what helps keep them functioning as they do. Even in this very same scene, though, you'll notice that they are still arguing. That Stark and and, and excuse me, yeah, Stark and Rogers, I'm saying that right, are still both arguing, because they haven't resolved their issues. That's important. But we see a lot of interesting character dynamics one-on-one in this whole section. So Banner and Romanoff is the most obvious one. Um, Neither of them can have children, as a nature of what they are. She was, you know, clinically sterilized because they destroyed her in order to make her into a weapon. You know, her past still clinging to her. And he's the freaking Hulk, which is his biggest problem, obviously. And he, you know, the idea of the two being together and whether or not they should be together. I gotta admit, I didn't call that, by the way. As I mentioned before, uh, my, myself and my sister and several of my friends all kind of thought that Romanoff was kind of gravitating towards Cap. But instead we see her gravitating towards Banner. In hindsight, the move makes a degree of sense. And the two have some good chemistry together. And it's obviously the two do care about each other. As uh, Rogers himself points out, you know, you both deserve a win. Right? As, as the world's leading expert in waiting too long, don't. But the problem is it's not that simple, is it? Both of them have their own things that are holding them back. He has the fact that he is a, a Hulk who is a genius, and she has the fact that she has a horrible past and the fact that, you know, she is a killing machine. I'm not sure what else to say about that scene, so let's move on to the next one. Uh, that would be Stark and Cap. Now, I already mentioned that. They're both out there chopping wood. I like that. They both need to vent steam, so they just go out there and they start chopping wood. Although in, his, in Cap's case, he literally rips the wood in half with his bare hands. Um, they argue. And they don't settle that argument. And that's the best part. 
And again, I stress that because it really is important to emphasize that they really are ideologically different. They can't be real friends unless they can acknowledge their differences, their different perspectives, their different ideologies, and their different mindsets, and then still be friends after that. They have to argue, right? That's what a real friend is. Not someone who argues, but someone who's still your friend afterwards. So, Stark then goes off, he talks to Nick, Fury. That's a great scene. Because Nick basically comes across as the old man there, you know. The grandfather of the team, basically, if you want to put it into such terms. And he's like, the way he talks to him is wonderful, because Nick just cuts through all the bullcrap immediately to get right down to talking about what is actually bothering Stark. And Stark's like, I saw it. I saw you don't understand. I saw all my friends dead. I saw the world getting ruined. I saw everything going to hell, and I failed all of them. And I, I thought seeing my friends die would be the worst part. But I was wrong. And it is Fury who steps up. The worst part is that you survived. He hits the nail right on the head there. Because Nick understands. Of course he does. How long has he been in this business? How many times has he survived over others? It's, it's a very powerful scene, and honestly, I think it has even more weight in the wake of uh, Winter Soldier. Because we have seen Nick brought low by Winter Soldier. And the fact that he is still here, like, yeah, back in the day we had weapons and tech and armor and resources and all this stuff to throw at you. Now all we got is you guys. I think that's good enough. <laughs> it's the weirdest pep talk, but it works very well, I think. So they go. <clears throat> we see a couple of little tidbits. Um, the Mind Stone, of course. This was something that had been a fan theory for forever, that the Mind Stone was the Scepter, or the Scepter was powered by the Mind Stone, or however you want to put that. It was nice to see that confirmed. Although the fact that it was in the Scepter and is yellow, didn't call that, but, you know, whatever. It's also interesting because for a long time there was a huge debate about the nature of the Tesseract and the Scepter. Because for the longest time it was presumed that the scepter was powered by the tesseract and therefore was basically just an extension of the tesseract. But as we can see and said, it, it is a separate uh, infinity stone. They also mentioned flat out, uh, this is actually later in the film, that four infinity stones have shown up in the last two years. That's something worth noticing. And he's absolutely right. Thanos has been playing behind the scenes for a long time now and he's been trying to navigate things so that all the stones are out in the open so he can grab them all. But I also like, Thor has his vision. There's not much to it, unfortunately, as I mentioned. Cut content and all that. But during the vision, he sees the four stones. We actually see that the Aether is containing the stone, just like the Tesseract is containing the stone, just like the Scepter is containing the stone. And they all kind of verge on this nebula, which looks a lot like... I only mention that because this might be the first actual... Well, like Thor puts it himself, someone's playing games here. This is the first time that, in character, the characters are made aware of the knowledge of Thanos and what's going on behind the scenes. And I emphasize that because we've known about this since Avengers. We've suspected it since before that. But here, the characters are now aware that there's a chess master in the background. And that's important because the characters need to know if they're going to do anything about it. So, they, uh, they have several scenes. There's another action set piece. <laughs> Um, they're being very serious about no casualties at this point, you know, trying very hard to keep the fight out of the city or away from, you know, problems, etc., etc. It's some good stuff, actually, for the most part. And I very much enjoy, uh, 
the way that they portray it. I also like Ultron in basically all of these scenes. I know I haven't talked about him that much since my initial discussion about him, but I like how he's just, oh, come on, really? Ugh, leave me alone. God, I'm just... <laughs> Why is everything going wrong? Why did you kill... Uh, no, come back. Oh, they'll see. They'll understand. They'll understand. Anyways. <clears throat> There's a we're gonna skip forward a bit because action set piece action set piece. There's a bit where Cap is Cap, in, in when he is at. I've always said Rogers is at his best not when he's out fighting or doing the good thing, but when he is inspiring others. That's just my opinion. I've said that before. I said that just a few weeks ago, or last week, I guess, because that video is coming out last week. Um, <clears throat> sorry, I redid my schedule, so I'm trying to remember where we're at in the schedule here. He just turns to Quicksilver and, and Scarlet. He's like, hey. There are civilians in the way. And he just, that's all he says. And Quicksilver's off. Going to get people out of the way. Then he turns to her. Can you stop this thing? She's like, yeah, okay. One of the things I like about her portrayal, first of all, I want to give praise to the actress. Uh, she actually does a good job in this film. Although the accent, eh, I do think she does a good job of portraying someone who is in way over her head and is basically just bumbling around trying to figure out what she's doing. I've heard some people complain about the inconsistency of her powers in this film. While that's a valid complaint in future films, I think here it makes perfect sense because she has no idea what she's doing. She didn't have teaching or training. She was being raised by Hydra. Uh, raised, you know what I mean? She was being trained by Hydra. That's not really the kind, loving, nurturing environment you need to really figure out how to do things. This is not Xavier's school for gifted students. This is, do this or I'll stab you more. So I like the idea that she literally doesn't know how to control her powers properly, and instead it's just, um... And she just kind of makes it up as she goes. In fact, if you'll notice, most of the times she uses her power to a large extent is reactive or extinctive rather than deliberate. When, when a bunch of shots go to hit hurt the people, she just automatically says, ah, and the shield goes up. When her brother dies, spoiler alert, she just ex screams and everything around her explodes. You know, none of that is very deliberate. It's just happening as a consequence of her emotional state, right? Almost like a mu... I'm not supposed to say that word. So, <clears throat> they get to the scene where they go to make vision. You know, they get, they get the... They get the cradle... They bring it up. Stark's like, we need to do this the right way this time. We need to make the real one. We need to make this work. Okay? <laughs> we, uh, we are monsters, and we need to own that and try to make something of it. So they try to make this thing. I've already given my speech on this, my opinions on that. I don't have anything else to add to that. Although it's funny that they actually literally start fighting in order to try and make this thing complete. And it's Quicksilver who's like, who just unplugs the thing. It's like, oh, yeah, no, please continue. There's a... Uh, of course, they fight instead of talking. I mean, it's, it's a film. What do you expect? So Vision comes out. Paul Bettany. I'm with that. He sees the world. It's been argued before that uh, Vision and Ultron were two halves, two separate halves of the Mind Stone, of the intellect of the Mind Stone, and that effectively it is basically the evil half and the good half, that both of them actually find themselves agreeing on a lot of points. There's a really great line, I actually wrote it down here towards the end, where Ultron says, they're doomed. And Vision's answer is to say, yes, they are doomed. But there's sort of an, you know, it's okay. <laughs> that's not necessarily a reason to kill them all. Because, and that's why I kind of delineate them as good and evil, because Vision comes across as the one who understands how horrible things are and says, okay, let's do what we can. And Ultron is someone who sees how horrible things are and says, I have to change this. 
which is funny if you think about it, because you can kind of see parallels of Rogers and Stark in that. Vision talks to them. They're all just kind of shocked, ready to fight, because they have no idea what they're talking about here. And he's, he's, I love the thing where he makes the cloak as, he, he sees Thor, and he's like, oh, I, I want a cape too. Um, but my favorite scene, and I have to admit, I, I gotta share something with you. I know you hate it when I share these personal stories, but when I was in the theater, uh, watching this one with, with my sis and my friend, uh, we're sitting there, and he gives this whole speech, and he's like, no, yes, this is something, and I need this, and we need to do this together. And then he hands out the Thor, or the Thor, wow, the Mjolnir. He hands Mjolnir to Thor. And there's just this moment of stunned silence as Vision is holding Mjolnir. <laughs> My, the audience exploded into applause. It was just, it was, a, it was almost an ovation, just, yeah. It's an awesome moment, is what I'm trying to say, and I, I still enjoyed it, even this time through. Even just sitting here in my room, you know, analyzing in my suit. Um, they go to, then we get to the big finale, which is yet another action set piece. I like how much effort they put into evacuating the city. There's a bit, I'm skipping ahead a little bit here, there's a bit where the helicarrier shows up. And... This scene, I know this sounds so stupid, but this scene right here really got to me. This was such a wonderful moment. Uh, uh, Pietro says, this is S.H.I.E.L.D.? And Roger says, this is what S.H.I.E.L.D.'s supposed to be. And Pietro's like, yeah, okay, I'm down with that. That was kind of me right there. I mean, I'm getting a little bit of tingles just saying about it. I know that's so stupid, but that is what S.H.I.E.L.D.'s supposed to be. That, is, that was awesome. Yes, it's this big doom-death helicarrier, but you know what? It's not being used to precisely murder people without casualties across the country. It's being used to save lives. Because the idea that a weapon is wrong is such an infantile opinion, in my opinion. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little serious here, but I think that's so stupid to say that we shouldn't try again, that we shouldn't build new stuff, that we shouldn't design these things. It's how you use it that matters, goddammit. Excuse my language. It's how you use it. Seeing what's left of S.H.I.E.L.D. Even, even uh, Himmelstein is there <laughs> from the S.H.I.E.L.D. show. Seeing how it's used. Seeing how people deal with it. Seeing how... Why they are trying to help these people and using this for better parts. That was awesome. That kind of thing. That, that takes time, resources, personnel, equipment, money. And it takes a lot of dedication. And they put all of that towards saving the lives of the, every single person on that city. And they succeed. They succeed. No one was left behind. And that's awesome. So they evacuate the city. Burton reaches out to Wanda. It's like, look. Yeah, the city's flying. Aliens, robots. I got a bow and arrow. Okay. <laughs> that's not the point. That's the point. You want to stay here? You're good. I'll tell your brother where you are. We're cool. You step out that door. You got to step up. You step out that door, you're an Avenger. And you'll notice that catches her attention. Because she's starting to see that being an Avenger doesn't mean, you know, bombing a city or, or nuking something or being like Ultron. Being an Avenger is about helping people, saving people. So she steps out the door. <laughs> and she's awesome. Um, <laughs> here's this great bit where Quicksilver rushes off and Burton pulls out his ear. Nobody would know. 
Nobody would know. I just, ah, last I saw him, Ultron was sitting on him. It was horrible. I, I don't know what happened. <clears throat> so Ultron singles out Thor in the fight. Now, that makes perfect sense to me. Thor is, let's be honest with ourselves, basically the heavy of the group as of this point in time. So it makes sense that Ultron and his pr- uh, prime body would want to try to deal something with Thor. Um... <laughs> This is actually when the Helicarrier really shows up. Sorry, I, I kind of skipped ahead there. I just had to get to that point. War Machine's there, too. I already made my comment about him being a destroyer. So you have, like, dozens, if not hundreds, of attack bots coming after that. Well, while certain fighters and warriors can deal with that sort of situation, you know who really can deal with that kind of situation? Someone who's designed to destroy a lot of things at the same time, like a destroyer. It was nice to see War Machine properly utilized, is what I'm trying to say here. And, of course, this will make a good story. The final fight is unique because I'm going to segue here for a second. I always knew I was going to. How many of you guys have played, uh, I, know, I know this is weird, how many of you have played video games? I know it's, it's a brand new concept. They just came up with this. It's got like paddles, you know. In video games, there's something called a challenge run. For those of you who are not aware, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and stop being stupid here for a second. Uh, and some of those challenge runs are artificially designed and, you know, within the game, and some of those are designed by us that we decide you know, we're going to do such and such for a game and see how it works out. One of those challenges is the one-hit KO. That means you can't take damage at all. If you get hit, it's over. You die. You know, there's uh, runs of Legend of Zelda Link to the Past that does that. Does that. Uh, several of the Devil May Cry's have things like that. You know, it's uh, Dark Souls is kind of infamous for being the one-hit KO mentality. That kind of a thing, right? I find this final fight interesting because, while it is still your typical MCU final fight, which is true in, like, every MCU film ever... You know, swarm of army, you know, big bad guy, rah, lots of destruction, tons of CGI fest, etc. The interest, the thing that helps it for me is the fact that a, the real fight was getting the people off the 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 island, and b, the fact that if they get hit once, they're dead. This is a one-hit KO fight. If any of those things reach that central thing, this is over. I I think that I don't know how to properly explain it. Maybe it's because I've done several one-hit KO challenges myself. God of War, that's another one, but um. I found that to, to be an interesting dynamic to make the whole situation more interesting. So then Stark, Thor, and Vision actually just tried to, to just blast down the prime body and actually managed to melt and damage the thing. And then they stop. I actually do enjoy this film, if that's not obvious, but this part right here is the part that makes the least sense to me. They just stop and let him go. Okay. So then Quicksilver dies. Has been has been said many times by many people, uh, Quicksilver is actually dead. He's not coming back, which is a damn shame because you know he was a cool kid and that's a great power to have. But it's actually a surprisingly good scene. The only darn shame of it is the fact that they introduced this new character in this film to kill him off. That's the only thing I feel is a bit of a flaw of that, especially since there's so many other ways he could have dealt with that situation. But let's let's not get into that. He he dies saving Burton's life too, which is nice. <laughs> And then, of course, Wanda just freaks the hell out and goes and kills, you know, Ultron Prime. Nearly dies in the process. Vision actually comes to save her, kind of leading to what will eventually become between Vision and Wanda. And then we have this nice denouement between, you know, because they destroy the island, everything wins. Woo! There's this nice denouement between Vision and Ultron, the last Ultron. He's already been purged from the internet, which is a nice scene, too. He's already been purged from all his other bodies. This is the only Ultron left. And the discussion between Vision and Ultron is, is great. 
It's actually probably one of the better scenes of the film, I would say. Because we see how, like I mentioned earlier, Vision really does agree with Ultron. He sees the same thing and the same protocols and the same mentality. He just says, well, I'm going to do this about it, whereas Ultron says, I'm going to do that about it. And it is ironic that Ultron ends up attacking Vision in fear, and then Vision ends up destroying Ultron. I actually honestly believe that if Ultron had decided to kowtow at that point, to, to surrender, that Vision might have actually allowed him to. I'm not sure, but just food for thought. The Avengers, th this film ends in an interesting way, because two big things happen. First of all, the Avengers are finally codified. If you're paying attention, at the end of Avengers of 1, they split up. Like, Banner went with Stark, um, Burton and uh, Natasha went off to be part of S.H.I.E.L.D., and so forth and so on. There was no Avengers organization, not really. Now there is. They actually take one of the old Howard, uh, Howard Stark uh, warehouses or whatever, they mention this in Ant-Man, and turn it into the new Avengers facility and actually have a formal Avengers organization with infrastructure and staff and support, money, resources, supplies, etc., turning it into a, a real thing. That's actually very cool and awesome, and also neatly ties into Civil War, because with, with inevitably with the idea of a superhero organization that has been formally formed, obviously it has to be funded, but that's probably coming from Stark, but more to the point, how does the government get involved with that? Because you know they're going to. Now, that's cool. But the other interesting thing is Stark, who basically isn't a part of it. He's, he's out. He's gone. Bye. I'm not part of the Avengers. Bye. And he leaves. Now, that makes almost no sense unless you were paying attention to the news at the time. See, here's the thing. Robert Downey Jr. basically was done after Iron Man 3. That's one of the reasons why Iron Man 3 ends in a way that could have been considered the conclusion of his story arc. You know, I don't need the suit, the shrapnel's gone, blah, blah, blah. Then we get to this film. He was convinced to come back for this film and several future films. But even at this point in time, there were still discussions and plans that he might not actually be coming back for future stuff in a major way. Now, I have no evidence of this. I want to stress that. But based on everything I said right at the beginning with the creative committee, the Marvel creative committee, with Perlmutter, and with the way that they were handling the financial side of the MCU... I have a suspicion that they were hesitant to bring Robert Downey Jr. back because they basically felt he's not worth it, you know, in a similar matter to what uh, actually ended up happening with Stan Lee uh, many, many years ago, for those of you who were of that story. And so the idea was, okay, you know, screw him, cut him loose, we'll do without him. I mean, they even established these new Avengers in this film, right? Thing is, I think that would be a mistake because I don't think Iron Man's story arc has concluded as of this film. And apparently Kevin Feige agreed with me, because once he actually managed to take creative control back and started really pushing for being the only creative control when it came, you know, being the actual mainliner, when it came to Civil War and going forward in Phase 3, Robert Downey Jr. was, was formally signed on for all of the stuff leading up to Endgame, and here we are. I just wanted to comment on that, though, because it's weird looking back at some of this stuff. I feel like, while obviously art must as ever bow to reality... The behind-the-scenes stuff is one of the reasons why the Phase 2 stuff just doesn't link together the way that Phase 1 does with itself, or Phase 3 does with itself. I don't know. It's just my impression. But for all of that, I did still enjoy this film. I hope you've enjoyed me sitting here and rambling in the corner. I'll see you next time, guys.